0: We can begin this time of prayer by looking at a passage from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11. He was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. This is a scene that we can flesh out a little bit with the help of other gospel passages, we know that our Lord Jesus would leave the disciples to go and pray on his own. He would go up into a mountain or go out into the wilderness. There's a scene like this where Jesus does this early in the morning and the apostles wake up and he's missing and they have to go look for him and they find him and he's praying. And so perhaps this was a similar scene. Jesus has gone out to be alone to pray. And the disciples follow him into his prayer. And then it says here that they only ask him this question. This disciple only asks asks him this question. Lord, teach us to pray. Only makes this request. After he stops praying. When he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So we can imagine the disciples looking for our Lord, perhaps in a place where he prayed frequently, a place set apart, a place a little bit off the beaten path. And they find him and they see he's praying, and they don't interrupt his prayer. Rather, they wait. And while they're waiting, what are they doing? Well, they're watching him pray, and perhaps praying a little bit themselves. And this question, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples, is most likely motivated by what this disciple and what the other disciples saw in the prayer of our Lord. What must it have been like to see Jesus absorbed in prayer to see the eternal son of God praying to his father. What attracted them about that prayer? Lord Jesus, was it a certain intensity? Was it a certain peace that they could see invaded your soul? Was it the fervor of your posture A certain bliss that passed over your over your countenance in those moments. What was it, Lord, about your prayer that made this disciple say, I want to learn how to do that. (laughs) I want that. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Lord, help us to see you in your prayer and to make this same request. Lord, we want to Learn how to relate to God. We want to learn how to pray. And our Lord's answer is an answer that He gives to all of us and to all men and women of all time. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. And He teaches them the Our Father. And in this version recounted by Luke of the Our Father, it doesn't say Our Father, it just says Father. Hallowed be thy name. An incredible answer. An answer that, in a way, we're all used to, but we should never get used to it. Jesus is telling his disciples, and Lord Jesus, you're telling us, when you pray, when you talk to God, God, who is the creator of the universe, God, who is infinite, transcendent, and all-powerful, a God who's beyond any conception, that your mind can, can ever make of Him. St. Augustine says, if you can grasp it, it's not God. God is the source of all things, who's the very root and core of existence itself. When you talk to Him, when you talk to that great, powerful, exceedingly beautiful, wonderful being, a being in a certain sense beyond being, beyond all our conceptions of the way things are, You say, Father. That's who God is for you. Father. You're Father. And that's who you are for God. You're his son. You're his daughter. And this is not just a title. It's not just mere words. We don't just call God Father. And he doesn't just call us his children but it reflects a reality. We really are His children. St. John in his first epistle makes this point very clear. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and indeed we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. So, St. John makes that explicit point. We're not just called children. It's not just a nice title. It's not just an honorific title because of our relationship with Christ. No, rather, he says, And indeed we are. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And indeed we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. This is the great gift. Lord Jesus, that you've come to give us. And it's the gift of your very self. There's only one Son of God. There's only one child of God by right or by nature. And that's you, Lord Jesus, the divine Son of God. And when you become incarnate and die for us on the cross, rise again, and found your church, you give us precisely a share in your very self, we become other Christ, we become sons in the Son, such that our divine filiation, our being children of God the Father, is a direct participation in your own identity, Lord, in your own sonship, that our Lord literally comes to share his very self, who he is with us so that we too can turn to God and say, Father, our Father, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and indeed we are. Lord, help us to reflect on this well, to let it sink in, and to do this, to see the reality of it, that it's not just words, that it's a real participation. In the Trinity itself, we we are inserted into the Trinity through Christ, and therefore God loves us as if we were his son, as if we were his only child. Because we are, because we're really connected to him. Jesus makes this point very explicitly in the Gospel of John. This is from John chapter 17. It's part of that long discourse of our Lord at the Last Supper. The glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's an incredible line. That's an incredible truth. That's the reality of our divine filiation. That's the reality of having God as our Father. You have loved them even as you have loved me. Such that our our adoption by God as his children means that he loves us with the same love with which he loves Jesus, the same love with which he loves his divine Son. Which means we're loved with all the love that there is. We're loved with a divine love, not a created love. We're loved with an infinite, all-powerful love that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love between God the Father and God the Son. And in order to, I think, (laughs) stress this point and have us not overlook it, Jesus, you go on to make the same point in different words, but the same idea. Just a few lines later in the same chapter. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. When you pray, Jesus says, say, Father. And what does that mean? It means precisely this, that he's made us truly sharers in his own relationship with God the Father. When God the Father looks at us, he sees children because he sees us united to Christ. When he loves us, he loves his children because in us, he sees truly Christ and loves Christ in us. And Christ He has loved from all eternity with a love that is God Himself, that is divine, God is love. Christ He has loved from all eternity, with an infinite love, with an unconditional love, with a holy and and piercing and encouraging love. He says it several times in the New Testament. God the Father's voice is heard, speaking of Christ. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father is well pleased in the Son. He's proud of the Son. He affirms the Son. And that's what we share, and He looks at each one of us and says, This is my beloved Son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Because in baptism we are united to Christ shares his life with us in the Eucharist. We share in his merits and grace. (laughs) Incredible thing. The merits of Christ become your merits and my merits in the state of grace. So that truly, when God the Father looks at you, he says, behold my beloved son, behold my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And obviously, this has to give us a great joy, uh, a great confidence, a great joy that we're loved in this way, a great confidence that, that no matter what happens to us, as long as we're trying to be true to who we are, true to our divine filiation, as long as we're trying to be good sons and daughters, to do the Father's will, to take care of the things He's entrusted to us, we don't have to worry about anything. In a certain sense, not even sin, because to be a good son or daughter is to trust God the Father enough that if we sin, if we mess up, we go back humbly to Him, we say we're sorry, and we begin again. We should have a great pride, a holy pride, in who we are, because God is our Father. We should be excited and joyful and grateful for it, all at the same time. Lord Jesus, thank you for this great gift. Help me to take a real pride, like a family pride, in my status as as a son of God, as a child of God. And help me to see, Lord, that this means that, you know, certain things are just beneath me. Right? This is the way we should look at sin. It's just beneath me. This is not how my family acts, right? It would be a disgrace to my family name to sin or to to not trust God or to not live with the dignity that's proper to my status as, as a child of God. I've worked in several schools in my life as a teacher and also as a chaplain. And it's funny in schools, um, you see certain kids who come into the school and right from the first day they act like they own the place. And they just have this great confidence. It's like they seem to know all the teachers and they're not intimidated by anything or anyone, even though they're like the youngest kid in the school. When the school starts in sixth grade, for example, they're sixth grade entering sixth grader or starts in third grade, they're entering third grader. Those are the schools that I'm that I've been familiar with. They start in third grader and in 6th grade. And usually what usually the reason for this is that they had they come from bigger families and they've had a number of brothers or sisters go through the same school. So they've heard all the stories and perhaps they've met a lot of the teachers already and they know their older brothers and sisters' friends. And so they come in with a lot of confidence that this is kind of like their place. And they they walk around literally like they own the place with tremendous confidence and way too little fear or <laughs> or apprehension. A number of years ago now, I was teaching a a sixth grade class in in a girls' school, and sixth grade was the youngest grade there. And I was filling in for the religion teacher, already as a priest, a chaplain. And I had never worked with these girls before. And so I was going around asking them their names, uh asking them to introduce themselves. And so I get to this one girl and I'll change her name to, to protect the, the innocent or the guilty as the case may be. And so I said, yes. And well, what's your name? And she said, my name is Catherine and I'm a Smith. And as she, as she said, you know, and I'm a Smith, she did this like little dance, right? With her fingers pointed in the air and her shoulders and her arms kind of moving back and forth. You know, my name is Catherine and I'm a Smith. And she was like so happy, so proud of her family name. And I was a little bit miffed. I just kind of looked at her like, what the heck? One of her friends volunteered to explain this um, this outburst of familial pride, and she said, "Yes, Father. Um, she she's had a lot of older sisters go through the school, and some of her family members have worked here, and so you know she's the family's kind of a big deal in this in this school." I said, "Oh, okay, I get it." <laughs> but I'll never forget that this little dance. It's such a pride in her family name the, and her family tradition at that school. And she was the youngest of, of several girls who had already been through that, through that school. And this is how we have to react to our, to our relationship with God the Father. My name is John, and I'm a son of God. And I'm a son of God to do it with a little dance because it's something we're very proud of and it's something that gives us a lot of confidence. The world is ours. I'm I'm a prince. I'm a son of the king of the world. I don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed of anything. I have a great intrinsic dignity because of who I am in Christ, because of who my Father is. We bow to no man. We all have a great intrinsic dignity. The only thing we should be ashamed of is sin, as Saint Maria's mother taught him. I'm a child of God. I shouldn't be ashamed of anything, except offending God. And if I do that, well, then, with a lot of simplicity, I go back to Him. I say I'm sorry, and I and I start over, like a, like a little kid does, with his parents, with his father. St. John Henry Newman helps us with teasing out and reflecting on the consequences of our relationship to God the Father. He does this in in a sermon on what he calls God's particular providence. And what does he mean by that? Well, usually when we think about God's providence, we think about big events, big issues, kind of global or national things that are out of our hands. And we say, well, God's in charge of the world, and I'm not. And so we have to kind of leave leave those bigger issues and bigger events, the course of the world, so to speak. We have to leave them to God's care, to God's providence, because there's not much we can do about it. And St. John Henry Newman basically says, no, um... The the providence that God exercises extends to every detail of our life. It's not just the big things. It's not just a universal providence. It's also a particular providence. Saint Thomas Aquinas teaches this um, explicitly in his in his theology. And so in this sermon, John Henry Newman kind of collates, he puts together different phrases and different truths revealed to us in the gospel about God's love for us. They're from the Psalms, they're from the prophets, they're from uh, the gospels, but without necessarily quoting them all, he um, paraphrases them and puts them all together to show us, you know, what it's, what God's love for us is like and the details to which it descends. And this is all a great way of reflecting on what it means to be loved by God, <laughs> to be loved as a child, as a son, as a daughter, by God, by a God who is our creator, and who is all-powerful and all-knowing. God beholds thee individually, wherever thou art. He calls thee by thy name. He sees thee and understands thee as he made thee. He knows what is in thee, all thy own peculiar feelings and thoughts, thy dispositions and likings, thy strength and thy weakness. He views thee in thy day of rejoicing and thy day of sorrow. He sympathizes in thy hopes and thy temptations. He interests himself in all thy anxieties and remembrances, all the risings and the fallings of thy spirit. He has numbered the very hairs of thy head and the cubits of thy stature. He compasses thee round and bears thee in his arms. He takes thee up and sets thee down. I've always found that such a fascinating line in scripture that the very hairs of your head have been numbered and i read a gospel commentary on this once which said that the the greek word for numbered is arithmeo and arithmeo means to count so the sense of the greek of the greek verse is not just that god knows the total number of hairs on my head because he's all-knowing. He knows everything, so he just kind of like knows it because of who he is. But rather that they've all been counted as if one by one, that they've all been accounted for, such that nothing about me is indifferent to God. There's a certain interest in every single part of me, every single aspect of my being way down to the hairs of my head. And we might think, well, that's kind of weird, right? Why would I care about the hairs of, uh, the number of hairs on anyone's head or care about each individual hair? Well, exactly, right? <laughs> when we're crazy about something, when we are absolutely obsessed with something, we care about things that to other people seem like too much, that's strange. Like the people who are, Who are sports fanatics. How could you remember the batting average of such and such a player in 1983 for the the, uh, Milwaukee Brewers? What's wrong with you? Well, yeah, I don't know, but uh, I just love baseball. I can't get enough, and I love stats, and so I know these things. Well, that's kind of like what happens with God and us. Why would you care about each hair in my head? Why would you know the number? Because I'm nuts about you. I'm crazy about you. I'm obsessed. He has numbered the very hairs of thy head and the cubits of thy stature. He compasses thee round and bears thee in his arms. He takes thee up and sets thee down. He notes thy very countenance, whether smiling or in tears, whether healthful or sickly. He looks tenderly upon thy hands and thy feet. He hears thy voice, the beating of thy heart, and thy very breathing. Thou dost not love thyself better than he loves thee. Thou canst not shrink from pain more than he dislikes thy bearing it. And if he puts it on thee, it is as thou would put it on thyself. If thou art wise, for a greater good afterwards. Very important point here given to us by St. John Henry Newman. You do not love yourself better than God loves you. You do not love yourself better than God loves you. You cannot shrink from pain any more than He dislikes your bearing it. God doesn't rejoice in our suffering. He dislikes our bearing it. And if he puts it on you, right, if he does let us suffer, which of course he does, he lets Jesus suffer too, it is as if you would put it on yourself if you were wise for a greater good afterwards. Only lets us experience pain and suffering for a greater good afterwards. That's the trust we have to have in God our Father when we go through any trial, any cross, any growing pains in our spiritual life. Any suffering at all. We have to have this great trust in God our Father that it's for our good. All things work unto the good for those who love God, as St. Paul says. Thou dost not love thyself better than he loves thee. Thou canst not shrink from pain more than he dislikes thy bearing it. And if he puts it on thee, it is as thou would put it on thyself, if thou art wise, for a greater good afterwards. Thou art not only his creature, though for the very sparrows he has a care, and pitied the much cattle of Nineveh. Thou art man, redeemed and sanctified, his adopted son, favored with a portion of that glory and blessedness which flows from him everlastingly unto the only begotten. Thou art chosen to be his, even above thy fellows who dwell in the east and the south. Thou wast one of those for whom Christ offered up his last prayer and sealed it with his precious blood. What a thought is this, a thought almost too great For our faith. These are the meditations which come upon the Christian to console him while he is with Christ upon the Holy Mount. And when he descends to his daily duties, they are still his inward strength, though he is not allowed to tell the vision to those around him. They make his countenance to shine, make him cheerful, collected, serene, and firm in the midst of all temptation, persecution or bereavement. Thou art man, woman, redeemed and sanctified. His adopted son, or daughter, favored with a portion of that glory and blessedness which flows from him, from God, everlastingly unto the only begotten. Flows from God, to Christ. Lord, thank you for this marvelous gift when you pray say father this is who god is for you this is who you are for god this is who i am who christ is for god and this is who god the father is for him and this is what i share with you my own relationship with god the father my own identity as his as his son The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. I may know to them thy name, and I will make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Recently, Our Lady, Our Mother Mary, appeared to someone, obviously in a private revelation, so we take this with a grain of salt, and you don't have to believe it if you don't want. But she appeared to a a man who was um, a Jewish professor. He was actually a professor of um, business at Harvard Business School. And... Among other things, she told him what her favorite title was, what her favorite way of being referred to was. And it was precisely the way that she related to the Trinity. Mother of God the Son, spouse of God the Holy Spirit, daughter of God the Father. Mother of God the Son, spouse of God the Holy Spirit, daughter of God the Father. And so we can go to her. And we can ask her, help us to appreciate God's fatherhood. Help us to learn how to live always as a beloved son or a beloved daughter, like you did. Help us to earn, as you did and as Christ did, that wonderful compliment coming from God the Father. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Our Lady, our Mother, Daughter of God the Father, pray for us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.